a name you know, and a bird you probably don't yet. I'm Scott Linden. Welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. we got a great show in store for you this week. We head deep into the sagebrush in pursuit of America's biggest grouse. Our guide, a name you know extremely well, Andrew McKean, will dig deep into his background and what he's doing these days. Former boss of mine, among other things. Looking forward to our discussion. But that's not all. We'll talk about public access. I just got back from a scouting trip in northeastern, well, north central Nevada. So I'll brief you on that. Got fresh intelligence on a new spot to go. The Upland Nation podcast is made possible by Roughland Performance Kennels, Happy Jack Dog Care Products, here on South Dakota's Ringneck Nation, and Dr. Tim's Natural Performance Dog Food. Can't wait to get started. Hope you'll pay close attention, and in the meanwhile, I hope you'll do me a favor when you're done listening today. Review the podcast at Apple Podcasts. Sure, appreciate that. That's how we get more people involved joining the discussion and joining the Upland Nation. Tell one person and you'll be doing me a big favor. That's all I ask. Thank you very much. Well, how was your week, your weekend? Over here, it's getting mentally prepared for, well, you know. (laughs) My season is going to start a little earlier than most. Uh, I'll be out in that sage country in Montana hunting with my good friend Al Gadori and another good friend, Tom. Tom's first sharptail hunt. So we're uh, we're getting ready for that in many ways, including going out to actually, Tom and I finally shot together some clay targets over at the Sporting Clays range. And uh, Tom was breaking in a new butt pad on his gun, which is relatively new. And I am still, av- as usual, working on that instinctive style of shooting and getting better. I have been humbled enough by some of the tough targets, so I'm picking the good ones, the ones that I claim (laughs) resemble bird-like targets as opposed to those wacky things some of the sporting clay shooters enjoy breaking. I can't. Also working with Flick, he is just about there, which means, of course, it's time for another plateau. If we're lucky, that's as far as it gets, but um, he is steady to wing shot and fall. Now adding shotguns to the mix and hoping that he maintains his gentlemanly demeanor. (laughs) You know, the biggest challenge around here, maybe for you too, is it's so dang hot. How do you get enough miles on your dog? It's, um, it's early mornings for us. And then, well, yesterday we had a hellacious hailstorm. So the first thing I did was go out right afterwards. (laughs) Yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that. But it was cool so we could get another couple miles in with Flick and uh, trying to keep him in good shape. Uh, you know, it's two, three days in a row of 20, 25 miles out in the west here. And so uh, he and I both got to get into better shape. Hope it's going well for you, too. Looks like everybody's working on many of the same things. Uh, the dog training thing is real big on Facebook right now. So, uh Yeah, just uh, good luck on all of that, and hopefully uh, your dogs are progressing apace. Trying to keep you up to date on some of the things that are interesting out there that might be of value to you. You probably know this. Your wallet is probably bruised and battered. Uh, The cost for pet food ingredients up 20% since the pandemic began. That's four times as much of an increase as consumer prices. That's for all the usual reasons. The price of the basics, the ingredients, whether it's corn, soy, and meat, plus transportation and labor, they're all affecting everything, including dog food prices. Now, here's an insight for you, though. So if you're not buying locally yet or from another source... Uh, Amazon is uh, basically telling those of us who need the more specialized dog foods, eh, you're not important to us anymore. We're just stocking and grabbing as much of that really big mass market corporate stuff as we can. We don't really care about all the niche products and you guys who need performance food, for example. So uh, 
Now you know. Jeff Bezos may be flying around in space, but he couldn't give a rip about hunting dog owners. Speaking of hunting dogs, over 12.5 million U.S. households bought a new pet from March to December 2020. Wow. There's some pressure. You know, you talk about supply and demand. There's there's another reason. Prices are going up for everything, uh, and including puppies. Man, we were looking at some corgi puppies. My wife's a corgi person. Uh, I just don't get it sometimes. You know, it's uh, it's it's disappointing. Uh, but as an independent business person myself, I understand some of that. Maybe you do too. Maybe you're in that world. You know, if you're an entrepreneur, you know that you got to make hay while the sun shines. But there's a fine line in there. I hope I never cross it. Hey, the Upland Nation podcast is brought to you in part by Sage and Breaker Gun Care Products crafted at the highest caliber, sageandbreaker.com. Take a look at their brand new gun case. It's another heirloom product. You'll be handing it down for generations. It's made of the best materials from wax canvas to crazy horse leather. Everything that you would need in a gun case is in the gun case from Sage and Breaker. Fred Bohm has done an incredible job on the design and the materials. Take a look at sageandbreaker.com. And where are you going to take that gun case? Well, I suggest you take it to Huron, South Dakota, the Ringneck Nation. They earned that moniker. They didn't just make it up. HuntHuronSD.com is where you learn more about all the public access, more pheasants than people, and some prizes. Sign up for their hunting information packet at HuntHuronSD.com, and you're entered to win one of three hotel restaurant prize packages. I've been to all of those hotels, and I've been to all of those restaurants, and I can't wait to be back. HuntHuronSD.com been looking forward to this discussion for quite a while glad i finally chased him down you've seen his byline in a whole bunch of magazines that's the premise for the call at least today we're going to talk about sage grouse of course he he lives there i get to go visit once in a while andrew mckean joins me from somewhere in montana andrew how are you doing these days I'm really good. It's nice to be on and nice to talk to you. It's been a while. I know. In fact, uh, even when we were working more closely together, it was almost always email, and I was usually far away from you or vice versa. What have you been up to? I, I You know, let's just get caught up here. It's been so long. I feel like I'm at a high school reunion, and I should uh, <laughs> you know, compare the, the, the picture on your badge with the real thing. Uh, to, give me a little backstory on you, and then we'll catch up from there. Yeah, I mean, really, to kind of close the circle a little bit, the last time we were in better touch was when we were working together with the Outdoor Life. Yeah. Uh, at the time, I was the editor-in-chief, and you were our man in the uplands um, covering kind of all things gun dogs and upland birds. And so, really, oh, the world has changed since then. I uh, was asked to leave my desk as editor-in-chief of Outdoor Life, which has been uh, probably was, it's been wonderful. Um, it was not my choice, but I wish I had made it myself. So I am actually back with Outdoor Life in the context of the hunting editor, and I'm sure you've seen a little bit of my work kind of under that cover. But the beauty of it has been it's freed me to work for everybody else as well. So uh, that's probably what you're referring to as seeing bylines in lots of different places. There's no shortage of work, as I've discovered, and it's wonderful work. So uh I still have as a beat kind of the great outdoors and public policy and conservation sort of writ large. Uh, I am talking to you from my homeland of northeastern Montana. I live in Glasgow. Those listeners who know the state know that it's on U.S. Highway 2, the old high line. And yeah, I'm in the middle of prairie grouse country. So um, I know we've got a lot more to talk about, but that, that, that kind of brings you up. Yeah. Um, you know, some, some folks might remember you from even before the outdoor life world, but, uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I still have fond memories of working with you. You were a good editor to work with because you gave good direction and, and I appreciate that. And, uh, I'm glad to hear you back doing some things with them. You're, you're one in a long distinguished line of people who have left that magazine and then come back in one way, shape or form. 
And uh, that's good for you. And I'm glad you're freed up to do other things as well, because a lot of folks who don't follow that book or what's left of that book, I, I don't mean that in that way. I mean, now it's digital. Um, now they can see your work elsewhere as well. So, um, yeah. so that's the premise for our discussion. I saw your byline and story about sage grouse. And I, I, I think maybe we'll start with that because it's near and dear to my heart. My first sage grouse were shot in central Montana. And, uh, while I won't be there for sage grouse this year, I will be there for sharp tails and maybe we'll talk a little bit about them down the road as well. So, um, give us a overview of the, the whole sage grouse hunting thing and uh and what prompted you to write write that story in particular oh i'd love to yeah I, and actually there's there's a bit of an update to it and i think maybe that's the best place to start before i kind of get into the kind of the more general principles of sage grouse and kind of my love affair with them but yeah the, the big story is the drought you're reading about is real. It's This is one of the great sort of bench clearing events uh, of my lifetime is seeing the drought that has descended on eastern Montana to a degree that uh, old time ranchers are saying they've never seen anything like it in their lifetimes. Um, we are at that place where you hear about kind of that fictional impact of, of drought where grasshoppers are eating all the wooden fence posts we, there are there's just nothing left of a lot of the range and and the reason i lead with that is um if you were planning to come sage grouse hunting in eastern montana this year i would take a serious look at not coming and postponing that trip i actually just talked this morning with some of my friends at fish wildlife and parks uh part of my decorated and long career was i worked for the department for some years uh, it's actually what brought me to Glasgow 25 years ago or so. Mm. Um, but talking to them about what I'm hearing from my ranching neighbors about what happens with this season. Um, there's a lot of landowners are saying there's no way I'm opening my land. I, mean, I don't, I, I'm so afraid of fire risk right now that I just can't in good conscience open my gates to people. Plus they always, they often uh, follow that up with saying, plus animals are so stressed right now. I don't know how you can in good conscience hunt them right now. They're all concentrated around water. Uh, what's what little water is on the landscape. And so I just throw that out. I uh, spent some time last night at our county fair and there's just this sort of drape of despair that hangs over everything of people having to liquidate their cattle herds, uh, sell their hay. There's just a lot of uncertainty. So, uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't throw that out really to lead to say, Things are not as normal, uh, at least in my part of the world. You know, I, I don't think I've ever heard it before put in such, uh, such uh, I guess I'll call it pessimistic terms. But, you know, in the, I was fishing in Nevada last week, and the same thing. Uh, number one, we're seeing all the cattle industry going through the same things you described. And, and on the fishing side, a lot of us uh, are, are pretty attuned to the idea that well if it's really warm and the water's low then okay if i'm going to fish i'm going to fish for a couple more a couple hours in the morning and then then we're going to leave the fish alone we're not going to stress them anymore i've never heard discussion about that in the wildlife world before but i've seen that two or three more times in the last couple weeks the drought truly does affect wildlife in ways that uh, maybe we hadn't thought about before from the lack of water to the lack of uh, insect biomass that is not produced because there's no rain. To you know, what else is what else is there in the in the in the drought threat that yeah. we should know about, Andrew? It's an interesting dynamic, and it's been kind of fascinating from to look at it through the biological lens. Yeah. In some ways, there are you know there's so many grasshoppers on the landscape right now that if you are a pheasant chick or mm -hmm. if you are a grouse chick at that kind of stage where you are converting uh and choosing between soft palatable insects or you know hard grain or in the case of sage grouse some leafy plant that there's no shortage of food so i think that's one of the happier things about this drought is yeah. i think the the presence and just the huge biomass of grasshoppers on the landscape right now is actually going to bring some upland birds through pretty well the problem with it is just what you described is that secondary cover is just not there. You know, there's pretty good cover for sage grouse and riparian corridors, 
that's where they are right now. There's not only shade with the kind of woodier plants, there's some sort of bileless water hanging around there somewhere too. But yeah. boy, the minute they leave that and get up into the true uplands, there's just nothing there for them. Well, and you know, I wonder if that also, of course, makes them more vulnerable to predators, especially avian predators. I was just thinking, as you mentioned, shade for the first time. Man, the last two or three times I've hunted sharptails out your way, uh, we looked for nothing but shade. And of course, like you said, it's almost always near water, but but it was critical at that point, and it sounds like it's even more important now. Yeah. So I don't know what's going to happen in terms of if there will be an official sort of suspension of the season, which starts on uh, September 1st, or if there will just sort of be piecemeal, you know, landowners close their, their specific properties to access. I don't know. And, and, uh, and I don't want to pretend that I have any sort of leading indicators of it, but I do think it's useful to just throw that out as, as kind of the context for our discussion yeah yeah and good to know and you know whether we go this year or next year or we're in another state altogether there are certain things that we can all learn from you 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 live right there in fact i think in a previous story or two you've actually talked about just walking out basically going out your front door and down to the end of the road and chasing sage grouse um so uh, the first thing is give me the exact latitude and longitude of that spot no, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you live right there amongst the sage grouse. And, uh, if we're living, you know, if we're, if we're visiting any of the States where there's still a season on those, some of the things you've learned could be valuable to us this year, next year, down the road, if there's a season. And we all know looming in the background is that whole threat that at some point, all the agreements everybody's made with the private sector and the public sector, they may all go away and we may have no sage grouse season. So there's an urgency there. Um, give us a kind of a primer on sage grouse hunting. Yeah, you bet. And that was kind of the basis for that gun dog magazine yeah. article is I, I called it our least most durable bird uh, in the, in the context for that is exactly what you just described is, you know, who knows what the longer term future is going to be. And and if you've been dreaming about hunting sage grouse, don't put it off too long. Although as I just introduced, maybe yeah. put it off one more year. Yeah. Uh, but the idea for, to me for sage grouse is um, it's, it's a love song to the places they live. And it's what brought me here as a young man and what has kept me here as a, as an older man. And that is, this unbelievable landscape of our sagebrush step um, that that is punctuated by sage grouse so beautifully they're just so compatible and obviously you know they're they're obligatory to each other uh, one follows the other but I'll describe a little bit about kind of what's outside my door and then what I look for as a sage grouse hunter and and the first thing is is really um, to me, they're the ultimate public land upland bird. They just don't tolerate disturbed landscapes. And disturbed landscapes, you know, can kind of be synonymous with, with farmland. Um, so you look for the biggest, most intact chunks of native prairie that, you know, that, 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 that came uh, after our glaciers and everything that, that, uh, that, that sort of brought them up. But big expanses, and in, and in years like this, and really... I'll give you kind of our, our normal weather regime is our country is at its wettest and sort of most gloriously profuse in June. We get so many rains, even mm -hmm. if we've got an open winter, you know, late May all through June, we get great rains that just makes wildflowers bloom. It just makes the prairie look like Ireland that starts curing down by middle of July. And so this time of year, Scott and I are, we're talking in, in early August now, you know, normal in a normal year, we're starting to get pretty cured down. Browns, uh, and and if you stand on a high point in that open sagebrush sea and and just look around, you'll see, just with color palettes, uh, you can kind of figure out where the moisture is. And in mm -hmm. almost all cases, those little nameless prairie streams, those little depressions that maybe you just hold a little bit more moisture than the uplands, the soil's a little tighter. Um, that is really where you, what you want to look for when you're starting to look at stage grouse country. I think for a lot of people, and you and I probably started this way, it's just an inscrutable landscape. It's sort of same looking, you know, it's so vast and gigantic. The landmarks are very subtle and it can be, it can be intimidating to somebody, but that was, that's sort of the first cue I would give is look for those 
little low spots, repairing corridors, and and start to hunt there because that's where the bugs are. That's where the shade is. Like you and I were just talking about, that's where the water is going to be. It's not necessarily where the birds always are, but it's a really good place to start. Yeah, I um, I, I agree 100%, and I'm, I'm sitting here visualizing some of the spots where I've been recently. You know, the other thing that struck me, and this goes way back, I was actually fishing for science. We are doing a Trout Unlimited project down in sage, another aspect of sage-grass country. And we pull into the campground, and there, there's a traffic cop because there's so many of us there. And he says, okay, you go you go park where the sage-grouse researchers usually camp because they're gone for the weekend or something like that. And I'm thinking, okay, i got to put two and two and two together and figure out why they're here. And, and, you know, to me, one of the other strong indicators in a normal year is the height of the sagebrush itself. Have you noticed that as well? Oh, I sure have. You know, what's interesting about our part of the world is we don't have the big Wyoming sagebrush that a lot of the yeah. Great Basin has. You yeah. know, that's that big woody, almost looks like bonsai trees. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like mm-hmm. so mature, especially the mature stuff. And there's almost a bower to it. You know, there's the, there's a leafy overstructure. We've got more silver sagebrush here. And it's, it's what you might recognize as kind of a single stem. It doesn't get super woody, but... What you just described about looking at kind of caliber of sagebrush, I think is a really good uh, second indicator. Look for the, the more woody, more mature stuff. And, and that usually happens in those riparian bottoms, but not always. But yeah, that's a, that's a classic indicator of sagebrush presence. Now, let, let's just, you know, every good hunter or fisherman uh, realize at some point you got to you got to look for a food source because there's a, there's there's a an hour or two in every morning and afternoon when that's where they're going to be and they're probably not going to be too far from it the rest of the time give us a quick rundown on uh, on how sage grouse differ from most of the other gallinaceous birds that we're going to hunt in that regard oh, i would love to you bet i'm actually going to back into the uh topic like I normally do. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I did when I worked for Fish, Wildlife, and Parks is I helped coordinate our upland bird uh, habitat program. And there was a lot of pressure in the legislature at the time um, to supplement feed pheasants that were having tough winters. And, you know, it kind of goes against a lot of what we learned as biologists about it's the habitat that's important, not the supplemental sort of human introduced things. But, it was more palatable to feed pheasants that were having a tough winter than it was to release pin-raised birds. So at least we kind of swallowed hard and said, we'll do it. Well, interestingly, a lot of the birds that were fed through a state-sponsored program died. The reason is there was no grit uh, in the feed. And of course, you know, those pheasants needed that grit in their gizzards to digest the grain that was being thrown out to them. But the snow was so deep, they couldn't dig down to any sort of gravel or grit. So, Here's why you, I promised you it was going to be a rabbit hole, Scott. <laughs> so, you know, the reason that uh, those of us who are so enamored with pheasants, we kind of pay attention to where they might be picking gravel on roads morning and night. You know, they, they need that grit. Well, sage grouse don't have gizzards. And so they're not, A, reliant on having grit to digest their food, but they also can't digest seeds and hard, uh, nutty foods because they just have no ability to digest it. So they're totally dependent on soft mass, whether that's bugs in the springtime and summertime or whether it's sagebrush in the wintertime. In most of the places they live, that only uh, available food is sagebrush. You know, and the cool thing about it is it's got some sort of anti natural antifreeze. It doesn't freeze rigid. You always find even in the coldest winters, mm-hmm. if you look at sagebrush, mm-hmm. it'll be rubbery, you know, and and, and somehow, uh, you know, keeps some sort of green or chlorophyll in it. And, 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 sage it doesn't, grouse, and it doesn't shed all its leaves at once either. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. So it's sticking up above the snow and it's available. So when we talk about sage grouse being obligate species to sagebrush, that's really a lot of what we're talking about is the dietary needs are fundamental. Have you ever opened a crop and found something surprising in there? I have. It's funny. Like a lot of times I'll find, you know, obviously bugs. Um, uh, We'll talk a little bit more about the seasonality of sage grouse hunting in just a second. But um, I found rose hips in there. They're very uh, keyed in on rose hips. 
interesting and and who knows why i'm going to guess because they taste good and they do. and uh, and they've got obviously vitamin c if nothing else and there may be other nutrients in there that we don't know about but fascinating i've done the same with quail valley quail for example and they they, they love those as well i don't know how they swallow the dang things but they do. <laughs> i thought either some of them are pretty big, yeah. like big around <laughs> your thumb. but you know if you ever like i i love picking uh, rose hips when i'm out mule deer hunting or antelope hunting or sage grouse hunting and you can kind of feel the uh, the more ripe ones almost have that that pouchiness of a really super ripe tomato and those mm. have the sweetest flavor but you know one of the things when you eat one of those your mouth and teeth pick away the fruit and then you're left with those seeds but if you've ever noticed those seeds are really easy to bite and then and then get the nutrients inside that rose hip seed so i'm wondering and this is speculation maybe they break down a lot easier in a yeah. sage grouse and that they're digestible that way. Yeah. I don't doubt that at all. I, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And, uh, yeah, I will, I've on, a, on the few sage grouse hunts I've done, I've never found rose hips. I found them on the same country during sharp tail hunts, but, uh, never that. How about any of those other berries out there, the Buffalo berry or the service berry, snowberry, things like that. Are they eating any of that as well? Not nearly as much as you'll find the, sharp tail in yeah. those. I, yeah. I really have never seen sage grouse really keyed in on those other berries. Mm. Mm. Good to know. All right. So uh, we, we now know that uh, the reason they are called sage grouse is they are sage um, because you are what you eat, um, <laughs> which begs the question, let's just get it over with once and for all. I've never noticed that they taste like sage. Which presumes that, of course, we know what sage tastes like. <laughs> but well, it's, it, it's you know, it's interesting. That's for sure. Oh, it's it's wildly different. In fact, the first sage grouse I ever brought to hand and then prepared, I think you know, I, 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 I think I gutted it and brought it back whole to the house, and I couldn't get that smell of that. It's just sage, like as I said in the story, it's like the very distillation of sagebrush. I, yeah. And it, it's not off-putting, but it's definitely different. Um, but here's what I've noticed is uh, I've eaten lots of sage grouse in my time. The young juveniles are, I think, the most palatable grouse I've ever eaten. They are just beautifully tender and very mild. The big adults, the big bombers that people are maybe hunting for uh, taxidermy reasons to mount, but also to just hold, you know, a three and a half, four pound prairie grouse is something just to behold. They definitely have a different flesh. It's more purpley, almost black purple. Uh, and it retains that sageness much more sort of deeply. It's just hard to get out of the meat. And so it's still edible. It's, I think it's delicious, but it's, you have to be mindful of how you cook it. Yeah, and we'll get into that in a moment. You're going to get a quick break here, Andrew McKean. This is the Upland Nation podcast. We're going to take a moment here to pay some of the bills. And uh, he'll be back. We'll talk more about, oh, all the other stuff that you've probably wondered about sage grouse. And maybe we'll go down another path or two as well. So stick around, everybody. The Upland Nation podcast is brought to you in part by Happy Jack Inc. Com. That's happyjackinc.com. They make all of my dog care products, whether it's parasites internal, parasites external, all the other things that will take care of your dog's coat, pads, you name it. If he's got a wound, they got several ways to manage that so that he won't lick it, it won't get infected. Learn more about all the Happy Jack products at happyjackinc.com. Say hello for me to Manning and Joe Exum. Family-owned for three generations. And then speaking of family-owned, my good friend Doug Sangal at Roughland Performance Kennels builds the performance kennel that you're looking for. You want to keep your dog safe on a road trip? That's the way to do it. Many of the things about Roughland Kennels are different than everybody else. You can pick a color. You can add accessories that actually fit. They interchange with the boxes so that you can get a system going. They are built like a race car's safety systems for hunters by hunters. Learn more at roughlandkennels.com.
And that's your cue, Andrew McKean. Welcome back to the Upland Nation podcast. Welcome. Nice to be back. I feel like I'm welcoming. Uh, it's a welcoming world. So yeah, thanks. Yeah, it is. I, I wish I was getting as far as Glasgow. I'd love to see you. Uh, but come, on, come on down to Lewistown. I'll buy you a drink at the new at the new brewery. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> don't don't make a promise you can't keep. So oh, I listen, <laughs> listen. I'll, 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 a promise to buy a drink means I get one too. That's true. <laughs> Um, okay, let's 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 go backwards a step or two first. What's your dog situation like at the McKean household these days? Well, I am living in the orbit of the strangest, most glorious yellow lab of my life. You know, this was going to be this was going to be the dog that was not going to be a lab. You know, and every lab owner I think has this inflection point. They're like, yeah, okay, yeah. it's time to it's time to change, and then. And then Miss Nellie, Miss Smelly Nellie, came my way, and uh, I say she she's been the most intriguing dog to me because I've never met a dog that is so uh, I guess less biddable. She is she's all about herself, um, very self centered dog, but also I would say in terms of uh, hyperbole or you know uh, qualities, she's also the most athletic dog, the most natural hunter, and uh, the most kind of curious and fun loving dog i've ever had the ability to share a household with she just has a great sense of humor and so it's taken me a couple years to sort of learn her and as a result uh, i've actually never had a funner uh just more glorious dog in my life so kind of a surprise but that's what we're doing right now she is the best water dog i've ever had she is the hardest hunter i've ever had and she her prey drive is off the hook so uh yeah she might be hunting for herself but when we're together i know i now after three seasons no longer have to say a word uh she wears a e-collar and i never have to even turn it on she's always checking back with me uh anyway we're actually going to go chucker hunting kind of in your country we're going to go to hell's canyon in late vertical habitats uh, pick it up from there. You said we're going to go hunting in Hell's Canyon. Then I lost you for a change. Oh, oh dang. Yeah. I will. Uh, in later October, we're actually coming your way. We're going to go to Hell's Canyon and hunt chuckers uh, along the Snake River. Uh, and we're going to see how my lab handles vertical bird habitat. Well, that'll be fascinating for a bunch of reasons. Number one, um, though you've seen this world before, um, probably not not right in your, uh, you know, your, your wheelhouse in terms of the species you're hunting. Uh, but I want to jump back to the dog again, because I'm at the same point. I got a dog. I think it's the dog of the, of, of a life for me. And he's got some of the same characteristics, but what I'm fascinated by is what you said about her athleticism. And, and you're, and you're a coach, you're a competitor, you're a, uh, you've been there and done that in the athletic world. So, you know, tell me how you, how you notice that. What are you seeing about your dog that, that tells you that? I mean, a couple of things. One, yeah, I'm a, I come from a long distance running tradition and I'm a distance running coach myself and, and, and still run a lot. And so the, the first thing I noticed about Nellie was the size of her paws. She's got wolf sized paws in a 80 pound lab. She's rangy, she's big, but she's when she opens up and just purely runs, which you know is when I'm hunting over it, it's not necessarily what I want to see. But off season when she's doing work, I, I've just never seen a dog that has, honest to goodness, lats. She's got this muscle <laughs> group that comes. It really is, it is. It's unbelievable to see. It's just beautiful. But she when she opens up, we actually did a little bit of speed work uh, on a four wheeler or a side by side and. She can she can sustain thirty seven miles an hour for about a quarter mile. That, that it's just it's jaw dropping. That is incredible. Yeah, you know I brag about my dog in a you know a, a flat out run. He's doing twenty five, but yeah. th that is just incredible. Well, good for you. So, <laughs> it, so that's 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 neat to have sort of in the wheelhouse. On the other hand. Uh, I don't want her to express that athleticism. Yeah, all the time. Yeah. I want her to hunt close and for me. And so that's been our, our learning curve is, is, is tapping into that, uh, that instinct because her first order of business is not 
to please. And I've never had a lab that didn't have that hardwired into them. They always want yeah. to please me. Yeah. This one had to learn. Uh, now that he does and knows that when she does her part and I do mine, that there's a bird at the end of that relationship, it has changed everything. Again, and I got to say, and I've, I've learned since that there are a lot of other trainers doing the same thing, and I'm trying to as well, and that is draw that connection, make it indelible. There's, you know, do the right things, and then you get to hold a bird in your mouth. And some guys will go farther and say, you get to eat a bird. Okay, whatever, whatever works for them. But that's fascinating. Was there a light bulb moment in that regard? I have been resistant to e-collars because I've never had, I've never really needed them. Um, it was really putting that on for the first time, having a little stimulation and as hard headed and hard driving as she is, she's a very soft dog. And, and that was all really all it took that she looked back at me. She associated me with encouragement, not discouragement. And I, I don't know what it is, but we, I, you know, I live in the glorious uh, world as an upland hunter and, and I think it was repetition too. You know, we'll yeah. Yeah. we'll hunt either for ourselves or for other people, and she'll she'll have sixty-five pheasant retrieves a year. And when you start to have that kind of, you know, repetition, I think I don't know if it was a single moment, but it was certainly a single season. Her second season, she put it all together, and and now lives to bring that bird back. Well, no birds, no bird dog, and vice versa. Um, yeah. Absolutely. You ever ha have any, you did, you, for a while at least, you you said you were thinking about a different breed. And my first thought is, man, if I was living in Glasgow, I'd want a pointing dog for all the reasons that everybody else thinks they want a pointing dog. Is that what you were looking at or were you looking at a, a different flushing dog? I hadn't quite gotten to what I, uh, I hadn't, you know, I hadn't refined my search. Yeah. I just knew I wanted something different. I, I've loved hunting over Brittany's. Um, and there's just, there's just something about their style and their, you know, and their home life too. At the end of the day though, that's really what it came down to was as, as much as I hunt upland birds, I hunt a lot of waterfowl and I live with this dog for all of those months when we're not hunting. And so uh, that's that honestly is what kind of in a lazy way returned me to the lab choice but uh hard charging sort of german short hair pointing dogs have just never really spoken to me huh. well to each his own i mean that's the joy of dogs and hunting period uh and glad it's working out for you that is spectacular um you, you doing any fishing out there these days Quite a bit. I sold my walleye boat, but right now the best fishing in the world is on Fort Peck Reservoir. Yeah, That's yeah. sprawling impoundment of the Missouri River, and the pike, smallmouth, and walleye fishing is off the hook. So the best thing about not having a boat is having good friends with boats. Oh, so, yeah. you know, I, uh, I buy a lot of beer for my buddies. Could be a lot worse. Could be. Okay, so I'm going to get selfish for a moment. That's the joy of being the host of the Upland Nation podcast. What do you know about the Charles M. Russell wildlife area? vis-a-vis -vis bird well, hunting oh man well that's my homeland and i'm yeah. an elk hunter as well uh and it's really where i learned elk behavior and, and elk habitats it you know it, i i love that country the upland hunting is is hit and miss and yeah. it's, it's 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 interesting um i would say it's become better for hungarian partridge than it mm -hmm. has been for almost any other species and kind of surprising i'm finding huns in places that i would associate their cousins chuckers with those high scabby rimrock ridges yeah um which they may have always been there i just never really looked for them there i um, i think that i think there was a memo set out because a couple of years ago i started noticing the very same thing every chucker hunt had a had a hunt or two in the bag and they were in that stuff that you you didn't think anybody could live in let alone a hungarian partridge yeah you know it, in good sage or sharp tail years, there's some really glorious places on the CMR for, for sharp tails. Mm -hmm. um, it's just such marvelous country to hunt because it's got so much edge and texture. And as I tell people, it's, it's, you know, it's not, uh, mountainous. Mm -hmm. It's got negative relief in terms of, you know, <laughs> the, gum, the gumbo canyons and the, and the draws, but it's cool country. 
Well, good. That That's on the short list if we stay long enough out there and if the temperatures cooperate. So uh, I might be calling you off the air to talk about that. Um, okay. That is Andrew McKean. He is uh, He's the hunting editor now at Outdoor Life, and uh, you see his byline in all sorts of other places as well. And lucky for us that he's doing that for everybody now. I'm Scott Linden, your host. This is the Upland Nation podcast. Let's uh, let's circle back to sage grouse because we haven't gotten very practical yet. We, t- we did talk about diet and and some habitat but beyond that uh whether we got a pointing dog or a flushing dog let's talk tactics and strategy um you you get up on that high point and uh you've told us uh, we should be looking for stuff that might be a little moister than most of that country then what I mean, then you're going to walk. You know, there's just no shortcut to that. You're going to cover a lot of ground. And it's not necessarily going to be, you know, friendly, hospitable ground. There's going to be cactus. There's going to be rattlesnakes. And I do want to throw out a word about rattlesnakes because that that tends to keep a lot of people away. And I've, I've, I've probably diminished the danger and and kind of prevalence of rattlesnakes mm-hmm. for years. And I mean years, maybe 15, 18 years, I went without encountering a rattlesnake while sage grouse hunting. Um, and when um, trains come through, uh, yeah. and then when Small I Small town did, America. <laughs> there you go, it's the old Burlington Northern Santa Fe. Uh, when I did discover them, you know, they were, uh, it was a manageable situation. I was keeping my dog close, sure. uh, and she's very averse to rattlesnakes, and so it all worked out. But two years ago, I actually hosted a group of uh, friends and family and, 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 and other folks. It was a fairly big party. And I sent them to a place, kind of a can't-miss sage-grouse spot. And I, I remember telling them, it's the only place I've encountered rattlesnakes. Be careful and stay away from this p- specific landmark. Well, I got uh, the call you never want to get oh, from, yeah, from the field saying, my dog's been hit. Where's the vet? And... And, and I, I felt, you know, as a host of the situation, I just felt awful that I had steered them into danger. And, and when they described the encounter, it was, you know, it, it could happen to anybody, but these were wide-ranging dogs. They didn't have experience with snakes. Um, and it just reminded me to, anytime I talk about sage-grouse, I do feel like it's important to just throw that out. To, it's, it's hard to recognize where they're going to be on the landscape, but just be aware that, that they're, they're there, especially early in the season. I kind yeah. of uh, talked about this a little bit earlier, but our sage grouse season, we've got the most liberal in the country. It's the entire month of September, but the season does change a bit within that month. That early season is typically so hot. You've got mosquitoes everywhere. You haven't had a frost yet. Maybe some cooler nights, but not real cold nights. Um, you're more likely to encounter snakes, obviously, in that time. Later in the month of September, after we've got some cool nights, um, the the bug activity is certainly less, but also you're more likely to see those rattlesnakes in those warming areas where they come out to bask in the sun. You can you can more effectively stay away from those areas. So just think about that. I think uh, when when you're thinking about a timing a trip, if you're if you haven't conditioned your dog to snakes uh, and you're worried about them, maybe come later in the in the month. You know, I, I've never had that call, but I actually got an email about something along those lines recently and thought the same thing. First off, people ought to remember before they go somewhere, they ought to find out where all the veterinarians are and which ones are willing to work at night. Uh, the second off, the other thing I would add to that is, unbelievably, there are more porcupines in that kind of country than one might think. There may not be a real tree for 10 miles in any direction, but God damn it. There's a, there's a porcupine somewhere in that ravine, isn't there? <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. That is a, they're a real danger and they're in places you could never predict. You know, they tend to be on those repairing corridors and they tend to be in places where you've got beaver dams and maybe that's the association. Oh. I, I'm not, I'm not going to draw that as a complete, uh, um, relationship but just be aware that there are a lot of porcupines so if you've got a dog that's not getting called off of something make that as your first guess that there's probably a porcupine in there I'll never... um, but you asked a little bit about kind of that other tactical thing so i, yeah. I kind of left off saying you're going to put some time in your boots um one of the things i notice is uh 
is looking for scat, you know, and, and that is often a leading indicator of bird presence, you know, and, and scat is pretty uh, identifiable once you know what you're looking at. Often it looks like a cashew nut, you know, a curly mm-hmm. cue, a poop, mm-hmm. but there's also, I know you've seen this, that black tar of, of sage grouse crap that is, is just unlike any other substance known to man. It is, it's like, it's like, black tar heroin that you'll just see splattered across the prairie. Oh, that I'm, I'm familiar with that. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, well, that was a little joke, was... everybody. I, I don't, I don't shoot up anymore, so don't worry. Well, I pictured him tapping his arm. Just that <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> that's the, that's one of the rabbit holes we will not go down, but you know, yeah, I got to tell you a funny story. So I, I live in Sage Rouse country too. We don't have near as money as you do, but you know, w- within 10 miles of my house, I can show you a covey. And, and the first time I was out there, I was running one of my dogs and I'm looking down at the ground. I'm seeing those cashews. I'm thinking, what the heck is, Hey, wait a minute. I look up and my dog's on point. 10, <laughs> 10 miles from my house. <laughs> so of course I, I told my, my friend, the sage grouse biologist, and he said, don't tell anybody about that one. We're keeping all of that secret. You know, you can't, that unit's never open anyway. But yeah, it is it's it is pretty obvious. Uh, either one of those markers, absolutely. So, so you're walking along and you're looking for that. And if you're not you're, looking up and looking down when you're hunting, then you're missing half the fun anyway. Oh, that's so true. Yeah. But I actually would ask a question of you. I was about to throw out that I don't think that sage grouse are particularly stinky birds. <laughs> but I, but I want to ask you what you think of that because it doesn't make any sense. That, But I've, I've often had dogs, if not stumble into sage grouse, mm-hmm. they were not – they didn't give me nearly the preparation that I might get for a pheasant or a Hungarian partridge. You know, I I might agree with that. I haven't had near the encounters that you have, and all of my dogs are, you know, half trained, <laughs> if I'm lucky. <laughs> but I've seen, you know, I hunt with mainly pointing dogs, and even and all the sage grouse I've ever shot at have been over pointing dogs. But yeah, I might say that they're 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 getting closer and the birds aren't holding as well and that sort of thing. And for for example, yeah, we see some wild flushes where dogs are, so there may be some of that. Th- again, think about um, the birds and where they are and what they eat. And if they're mm-hmm. emanating odor at all, it smells a little bit. My guess might be like the stuff they eat. And oh, the dogs yeah. get used to it. They get nose blind to sagebrush. Plus, it's real dry. And so yeah, the scent, it's yeah. just not a real, the scent conditions are not prime. So, yeah, that's good. You know, I got to ask you this, though, before we go on, because I'm, I'm enjoying the hell out of this. By the way, that's the Upland Nation podcast. That's Andrew McKean. I'm Scott Linden. Um, well, disturbed landscapes and farmland, cropland, even even grazing ground, for that matter, are, are uh, anathema to sage grouse in most cases. Enough people say, hey, you know, whenever I'm doing that, I'm going to make sure I get along the edge of an alfalfa field. Mm-hmm. You, ever, you ever seen that? Oh, I have. I have. And, and I, but it's not, I, and I can't say consistently it's early season or winter season. I don't know what it is, if it's the leafy greenery or if it's the bugs in the uh, in the alfalfa or if it's the say, uh, shade. Yeah. And maybe it's yeah. all of those things kind of in concert. No, it's funny. I, I talked about that undisturbed landscape at the entry of this conversation. As I actually think about some of my favorite sage grouse places, I'm going through working grazed pastures. Mm-hmm. I'm going underneath big transmission lines for you know roost uh, raptor roosts i'm going next to winter wheat fields and i'm finding sage grouse in all those places so they're more durable than i may have let on they're they're pretty adaptable but at the end of the day i find probably more consistently birds in that big open sage brush than i do on the margins yeah i would agree but i think you're right they're they're a little bit more flexible than than the biologists who write the scientific papers might think um but if you're trying to hedge your bets, that's where you want to go. You want to go to that, uh, you know, more pristine country. Absolutely. Um, I, the other thing I would say about them, and this, this is also probably a variable that depends on the time of season and, and how hard they have been hunted, is mm-hmm. 
a lot of times early on you will have a, just a big cubby rise and it's amazing the number of birds that come out of the sagebrush uh, almost always however especially early on there will be two or three that uh, stand their grounds and are late flushers and so even if you just get spastically out of <laughs> Uh, you know, discombobulated and delaminated in that initial flush, which you should. That's one of the great delights of sage grouse is that just levitating rise. And it just, you, you can't help but just to be caught off guard. Uh, but once you recover your wits, get ready for that second flush because there's usually going to be one or two singles to get up. You've seen me shoot. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm watching you. <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely true. You know, it's funny, as you might know, you know, chuckers are the same way. So are valley quail. Uh, I've never seen that in bob whites for, or the desert birds, but um, there's always the, either the, you could call it the dumbest bird in the, in the covey or the smartest bird in the covey, but there's always one. And, uh, yeah. and uh, that's the one I wait for because I'm usually too far away anyhow, and it's uphill. So. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. So, I, I mean, there are so many other variations and sort of secondary considerations, but those are kind of the biggest ones. Walk a lot, cover ground. I guess I would throw out one more, and this is something that's it's taken me years to, to notice, is the migratory nature of sage grouse. Yeah. Um, you know, when I worked for the department here, there was an interesting study that looked at what we call the transborder population of sage grouse. So this is the the... the the group of birds that occupies southern Saskatchewan and then comes in winters in the very first few miles, northernmost miles of Montana. And there were collars that were put on those. Some of the early GPS collars were put on those birds. And they would, the, the biologists detected that movement over the course of, you know, maybe 40 or even 50 miles, much wow. farther than you would think. But then they disappeared. Some of those collars were found in the area you were just talking about, that area near the Charles M. Russell Wildlife uh, Refuge, which is in the southern end of my county, wow. 100 air miles from where they had spent other t parts of the season. So I just throw that out as a hunting tactic. If you are finding old sign in a place and just not a single live bird, it very well could be that you're in the wrong season. That's remarkable. Um of course, you know, wh where they went is obviously not figured out yet either, but one doesn't think about sage grouse as migrate migratory birds, let alone that distance for a, for a bird like that. That's a lot of flying. That's a lot of flying. And actually, I, I noticed something else. I was not hunting. The sage grouse season had been closed for months, but I had a late season elk tag and I was down in the Missouri breaks pretty far south and, um, I, I saw something in my, I was driving, and I saw something in my rearview mirror that caught my eye. As I watched, I saw what I thought were snow geese. They were high-flying birds coming my way. I stopped and looked, and it was about zero degrees, maybe 10 below. It was a cold, cold winter day. They were sage grouse flying at about 1,000 feet, and maybe 100 of them. Uh, and they flew over me and then uh, settled down on a distant ridge. Now, I don't know if those were some of those birds that were coming from a long way off or if they had just sort of moved within, you know, from ridgetop to ridgetop, but I've never seen that behavior before, ever. No, that is remarkable and probably a once-in-a-lifetime observation. That is, I'm fascinated by that. Among other things, that's why we go. Sage-grouse are one of those mystical birds that... You know, everybody longs to at least pursue once in their their bird hunting career, and and we've you know covered so much of the ground here on how to do it and why to do it. Uh, go back and read uh, that story by Andrew. Was was that in Gun Dog magazine? Yep. It's okay. The latest issue of Gun Dog. Yeah. Uh, which reminds me, she uh, I got a story coming up in next month's uh, issue. Um, great story great information incredible stuff out there if you had to boil it down andrew mckean to one thing what trips your trigger about sage grouse hunting oh one thing i as i say in the story finding a sage grouse effectively hunting a sage grouse holding that sage grouse in hand is to me one of the just classic iconic american experiences it's like 
holding an arrowhead in your hand. It's that sort of rare and precious. And 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 to me, that just it brings it all into focus. Why we care about these landscapes, why we care about this activity, uh, and it, I think it connects us with not only the people who came before, but these landscapes that matter. So that's that's what I would say. That's why I do it. Yeah, I can't agree more. That's exactly right, Andrew McKean. It's been a pleasure. It's good to get caught up again. We still got way more catching up to do. Maybe it will be at that new brewery in Lewistown. Um, <laughs> but wherever it is, thank you for being a part of the Upland Nation podcast. Uh, here's to a great season, no matter what you're after, what I'm after, everybody else out there. Uh, go reread Gundog Magazine and Andrew's story and learn more about these incredible birds. Andrew, thanks again for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Scott. This was a lot of fun. Still got plenty to talk about here, including a chucker and quail spot I just scouted last week. You might want to take a look at for a bunch of reasons. I'll tell you about that in just a moment. First, let me tell you about Dr. Tim's natural performance dog food. Yeah, that's what I feed Flick. I use the uh, momentum formula these days. Getting ready for the hunting season. Uh, a little bit higher fat, a little bit higher protein than kind of the average uh, and that's the joy of Dr. Tim's performance dog food. Uh, you can choose a formulation that's just right for your dog, whatever life stage, whatever dietary restrictions they have. He's got something for everybody. The guy's a veterinarian. He's a sled dog racer. He knows about dogs and performance. D-R-T-I-M-S is where you, D-R-T-I-M-S dot com is where you learn more about all that stuff. And if you would like to try one of Dr. Tim's formulations, you'll get 30% off your first order if you use the code UPLANDNATION. So, my buddy and I meet every year somewhere between his house and my house to fish. And, uh, well, we've hit all the usual spots, so... Um, we decided to go a little bit further afield, a little bit further east and north in Nevada than usual. Heard about a new-ish state park. It's actually called the Walker River State Recreation Area. And while we only explored one portion of it, the what they call the elbow section, um, it's got some promise to it. Now, this is, uh, put yourself on the map, you're near Yarrington, Nevada. Yeah, I know, the vast metropolis, met, metropolis of Yarrington. Uh, it's the middle of nowhere, but you can find it. Um, we were there for the rainbows. We also saw bighorns, wild horses. We saw a gray fox. We saw some mule deer. And we saw some chuckers and quail. It's classic chucker country, and vast canyons full of sagebrush and lots of volcanic activity. But with that wonderful river running through it, the birds are coming down once a day for water. The quail, they're always in the lowlands. Uh, the willows are head high or taller. The chuckers are always going uphill, but they are closer than many places. And it might be worth a look for you as well the Walker River State Recreation Area in Yarrington, Nevada. This land is your land. Why not take advantage of it? And that is all brought to you by findbirdhuntingspots.com. Yeah, that's my new authority website, uh, new material every week to help you find places to hunt, train, and care for your dog. This week, four tips for a great road trip for your dog. Take a look. FindBirdHuntingSpots.com Well, that'll put a capper on it. Thank you, Andrew McKean, for your insights. Just love talking about that part of the country, and hopefully we will get together again real soon. Thank you all, of course, for listening. Please do tell one friend, and if you got a couple minutes, leave a review at Apple Podcasts talking every day with you on the wing shooting usa and the upland nation facebook pages 
Sure would appreciate some more insights from you on what you're doing these days as the season approaches. So let's talk every day on Facebook. I'll leave you with this from noted author, one of my favorites, John Steinbeck. He says, I've seen a look in dog's eyes, a quickly vanishing look of amazed contempt. And I'm convinced that dogs think humans are nuts. Well, John, like on so many other topics, you may be spot on there as well. Hey, keep training, keep practicing, give your dog a hug. I'm Scott Linden. This is the Upland Nation podcast. I'll see you in the field real soon.